Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The issue of immigration seemed to be solved in British politics after the Brexit vote in 2016. The sun has risen on an independent United Kingdom. Yet Britain could see tens of thousands of migrants crossing the Channel this year, bringing the issue back onto the political agenda. My name is Stephen Edgington, and in this episode of Off Script, I talked to the man who campaigned for controls on immigration for decades, Nigel Farage. The GB News presenter and former Brexit Party leader joins me to discuss the border crisis, Boris Johnson's leadership and whether the special relationship is dead. I started by asking whether Boris Johnson is a Conservative. No, of course he's not. I've been a Boris sceptic for years, and even when he was writing all these columns for this newspaper, you know, way back in the early 90s, 30 years ago, he was the Brussels correspondent, writing these very sceptical pieces, you know, um, about directives that affected sheep and all the rest of it. But I mean, I met him in the early 90s, and let me assure you, he might have enjoyed poking fun at the whole thing, but he believed in it. He believed in it. He was still as mayor of London, championing the single market as being this great thing. And in fact, the first interview with Andrew Marr, after he declared he was going to support Leave, when he was asked the single market question, he couldn't answer it. So, you know, Boris goes with the flow. He then, for many, many years, wrote a column for this newspaper, a Monday column, uh, witty, entertaining, provocative, uh, all the things that a good journalist should do. And it was very appealing to a Telegraph audience. But I honestly, genuinely don't think he ever really believed in these things. You know, you get politicians that have very, very strong beliefs, strong philosophical core. And, you know, Mrs. Thatcher always said, you know, in a crisis, back to first principles. How do I deal with this? Why am I here? You know, why am I in politics? And Boris doesn't have that. Boris is a metropolitan liberal. He always was. The whole family are. Um, uh, He's done very, very well uh, in politics by being different, by being vaguely amusing, which he can be, there's no doubt about that, Uh, jovial, when many of the others look miserable. So all of those things are good qualities, uh, but he's never had any real beliefs. He wants to please everybody, and he can't make decisions. And I had this this moment with him in the referendum when, despite the antipathy that existed between 
Cummings and well, Cummings and the world really. Uh, we've seen more of that lately. But despite the antipathy between the Aaron Banks group and the Cummings leg group, you know, Boris and I did talk every Sunday during the campaign. You know, where were we going to be going? What were we going to be saying? Was there some way we could get some continuity of message? It was, it was, you know, it was sensible to do it. And I said, look, there's a lot of speculation in the press about divisions, divisions in the Leave camp. We don't need that. I said, why don't we converge one day? Why don't you, me, and Kate Huey, all with our campaign vehicles, converge? I said, you know, it could be Andover. We all converge. Uh, we show there's real unity of purpose. We may be in different groups, but there's a unity of purpose. We agree some combined messages for the day we can use. I said, we'll, we'll get a bow wave of publicity that'll last for 48 hours. And Boris said, oh, yes, he said, brilliant. He said, um, it'll be like, um, yes, it'll be like the Russians and the Americans meeting on the Elba. I said, well, I hadn't actually thought of it quite like that, but, you know, why not? Yeah, brilliant idea, brilliant idea. I said, well, should we do it? Let me ask my people. I said, what do you mean, let me ask my people? I said, well, you're going to go to the apparatchiks and ask for permission. I said, Boris, you could be prime minister in a few weeks. Can't you decide? And the answer was no, he couldn't decide. He enjoys pushing off that responsibility to somebody else. In conclusion, I would say this. He is a cheerleader, not a leader, and we're seeing that. Is he the heir to Blair? Osborne, of course, idolised Blair. Cameron, to a certain extent, tried to ape Blair. And we had this period of politics from 2010 to 15 where all three parties were effectively social democrat parties. And that was why UKIP went from that big in the polls to suddenly becoming declared a major party in British politics because the gap was absolutely enormous. And I think we all felt, or we all hoped, that with Brexit and with an 80-seat majority, it was all going to be different that if ever there was a time to be radical, if ever there was a time to reform, if ever there was a time to really make us outwardly appear to be a very pro-business country, this was the moment. And we've gone back to the Oxbridge chumocracy, just as it was in the, in the Cameron Osborne years. And it's really quite funny, isn't it? I was, I, was, I was musing on television last night that yesterday we had the Conservatives being the party of big government the NHS, and uh, spending more money. And we had the Labour Party <laughs> saying the tax rises were unfair. I mean, you know, they're all wearing each other's clothes. Now, I know this, that's fashionable in some quarters these days, but, I mean, the whole thing's ridiculous. And the electorate have got no choice, and genuine Conservatives are, I think at the moment, bewildered, is the word that I would use. Just bewildered. I mean, not, quite a depress- not quite a depression yet. No, I mean, I've, you know, I've spoken to various people who say, oh, I'll never vote Tory again, but people always say that midterm. You know, it's, it's, it's the way people are. I do think if there was a general election tomorrow, there'd be a very large-scale abstentionism. You know, the turnout would be down. But the truth of it is that Labour are in such a mess that he can almost get away with all of these things. There's no opposition. There's no opposition. I'm just disappointed. I think we're squandering all the advantages. I thought we had a big advantage with the early vaccine rollout as one example, uh, getting away from single market rules, albeit pity Northern Ireland, who are still stuck there, but getting away from those rules. I mean, this is not a time to be putting a tax more than 10% on dividends that people earn by investing money 
uh, in equities and in, and in new companies. These are very, very bad messages. I mean, I think the dividend tax actually is almost the worst thing that he did yesterday. So we're squandering opportunities. We're not taking advantage. I don't see the, the genuine supply-side reform, the deregulatory zeal. Uh, I mean, this is a moment, you know, we've not had... The Conservative Party, I say we because I came from there originally, but we've not had a, a majority like this you know, since the mid-1980s. And the Thatcher government, after tough early years, actually turned around. There was a public sector debt repayment every year and some genuine reform that led to money flooding into Britain from all over the world. We're doing none of those things. So is this a problem of government? And what I mean by that is, I mean, if you look at Dominic Cummings' blog post, for example, he says that a big part of this is the civil service and the way that the government works. He also argues that it's a problem of leadership, and you've mentioned Boris Johnson's leadership there already. You've sort of analysed that, a bit chaotic, can't make decisions. And is it also a problem of intellectual vacuum within the Conservative Party? Back in the the 80s, you had these think tanks, you had this sort of exciting moment here. So what what is it? What's the the problem? I mean, this is today's today's front page. Uh, There's a picture inside of the Cabinet meeting yesterday. I sat there coming up today to meet you scrutinising the picture. And I thought, who of them would I employ? And you know what, it was about two of them. <laughs> about two of them in the cabinet that I'd be prepared to put my hand in my pocket and employ working for me in a company. They are a completely talentless bunch. They are the grey men. They are the Oxbridge PPE set. They generally come from privileged backgrounds. And that's not their fault, but they generally do come from relatively privileged Backgrounds, their experience of the real world is. I mean, the backbenches are better. You know, I mean, there is. I have to say that the intake of 19, I've met some quite impressive, you know, new Tory MPs. But this lot in cabinet, uh, there is no fundamental passion or ideology. How many of them would have served in Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet? I mean, ask yourself that question. And again, there might have been one, there might have been two. So, yes, of course, Cummings is right about some things. Of course Cummings is right about the power of the civil service, the resistance to reform, the resistance to change. But that isn't just in government. You get that in business. You get that in science. Everywhere you go as human beings, you find there is an establishment status quo who are happy with the way the world is and don't want it to be challenged. That's always been the way of these things. This is a complete failure of leadership by a group of people who are not fit to lead. Boris Johnson's argument would be that he is representing his red wall voters. He's being patriotic. He got Brexit done. And now he's kind of sort of spending money on the NHS, which is what you know, polling shows that's very popular and people love the NHS. And I'm sure he's done so many focus groups and polling and everything else on this policy. Oh. And it seems pretty popular well, among actually, his voters. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think you find that his popularity ratings are falling quite sharply. But this policy of tax rises, I mean, specifically to fund social care in the NHS. Look, the red wall voters, look, come on, let's be honest about it. There's not a single person voted Conservative last year who hadn't first voted UKIP or the Brexit party. We were the gateway drug. Just look at what UKIP were doing in local elections in the North East for years and years and years. European elections, general elections. You know, these seats the Tories won last time around. UKIP were getting 10,000 votes in those seats in 2015. We were the gateway drug. And when it came to the election of 19. Look, I wasn't happy with the Brexit deal, but it was better than it had been. And I kind of just said, look, you know, there's, there's no point in me opposing at this moment in time, because that, at that moment, we might have split the vote. All right? I didn't want to do that. 
You know, if you say to a red wall voter, oh, we're going to put taxes up on the rich, they don't care. They'd like to be rich. These are the aspirational voters. This is what Thatcher understood. It's what Reagan understood. It's what perhaps John Howard in Australia understood. You look at the really successful post-war, actually Trump to a certain extent too, understood this. You look at the really successful post-war conservative leaders across the Western world, and they had a big buy-in. Yes, blue-collar votes, but in many cases, people who wanted their kids to have better educations, people who were setting up their own businesses, their own limited companies, taking risks, wanting to move on, people who are intensely patriotic, and that's the reason that the Brexit thing did chime, people who believe in border controls, who can't stand seeing you know, rapid change, demographic change within their communities. I mean, is it any wonder if you look at the list of concerns of, of voters at the moment, well, obviously health is top. We understand why. The economy is second. We understand why. What's third? Third is border controls, equal with the environment, despite the fact the BBC, I mean, reluctantly cover what's going on at Dover every single day. And these are red wall voters, because part of that promise was taking back control of our lives and our borders. And it's not happening. We will get on to border controls in a moment because it's a fascinating topic. Yes, but you said to me he's still very popular with these voters. I'm arguing with you. As you see some of these other issues start to rise in the polls, there is a problem here. So does Boris... So two, there's two questions on that. Yeah. Does Boris understand his own voters? No, he's never met them. And secondly, if that is the case, could we see a huge rise, and you've already sort of alluded to this, a huge rise in, in apathy and then mm. anger? And you've seen that before in <clears> British <throat> politics. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, Boris... You know, Boris can turn up on a factory and be very amusing, and they all say, isn't he great? I, honestly, if you put Boris into a working man's club in the north of England to sit down and have a beer with the guys that were in there, he's, he's not going to connect with them on any level at all. He's just not going to do it. But as a cheerleader, that's fine. Rah, rah, that's all fine. You know, Robert Jenrick, how, how, I mean, how's he going to get on in a working man's club? Hancock, well, he's gone for the moment. He'll be back at some point in time. Williamson, I mean, without naming names, I mean, half of this lot are social misfits. I mean, they're just not people that can go out, uh, you know, and talk to red wall voters. They simply can't do it. They understood that Brexit was this absolutely key defining issue of our times, and they went with it. I don't think Cummings believed in Brexit. I mean, when I first had negotiations with him about the referendum, he wanted to have a second referendum. To, to, you know, he wanted a Brexit vote to negotiate a better deal. You know, they weren't true Brexiteers. They don't really understand their people. The Red Wall is, is fiercely patriotic, and, and I think Boris... I, I, there isn't much opposition, but his own personal reputation, I think is on pretty thin ice. Let's talk about alternatives to Boris, which I think is a great gateway into this immigration issue. So one of the people who you may employ in your cabinet, or Boris Johnson's cabinet, is Priti Patel. I don't know if she was on your mind, but she's one of those politicians who people say, you know, she could, she's an alternative to Boris Johnson. Mm. When he eventually goes, maybe she's a leadership contender because of her tough talk on immigration. Yeah, well, tough talk and no delivery isn't really very good, is it? I mean, I like, look, I'll be honest with you, I like Priti Patel. You know, I've known her on and off for a long time. Uh, she had the guts and the courage to uh, support Jimmy Goldsmith. Her father was a UKIP member. I mean, you know, there are lots of reasons why I like her. And politically, she's probably the only Thatcherite in the cabinet. So there are lots of reasons why I do like Priti Patel. 
Um, but it's no good standing up making tough speeches if you can't deliver. And this is what's happening with the border crisis. She will probably finish up getting reshuffled. I mean, it might be better for her to say, look, I have tried, but because as part of Brexit, we stayed part of the ECHR, actually deporting anyone anywhere is very, very difficult. And Boris can talk about lefty lawyers, but it's that legislation, it's that commitment that the lefty lawyers are using. So, you know, yes, I like Pretty Patel, but I probably find myself now being the most critical person of her because I've been calling her pretty useless because it's no good if you keep promising and not delivering. So, you know, yeah, in normal circumstances, she w- would be one of those people. Obviously, the interesting one is the Chancellor, whom we barely know. I think that's the truth of it. We barely know. Rather like John Major. John Major sort of appeared, had a couple of very big jobs, and became Prime Minister. But we didn't really know who he was. He'd sort of, he'd risen so rapidly. We didn't really understand who he was. And Rishi, what I did like about him was he went for Brexit independently early, when that was probably quite a risky thing to do. He was talking about free ports quite some time ago, which I've always thought was a great way. Rather than flooding places with, with, with taxpayer subsidy, why not give people reliefs and incentives? So they're big plus sides for uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, obviously, he's had a career, in, you know, a career in business before. And he's alleged to have been a, be a Thatcherite as well. I don't know if that's true or not, but if you read the newspapers, there's yeah. lots of talk about that. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe he is. And this um, is your point, isn't it? I just don't know. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to be popular when you're Father Christmas. Ten billion here, ten billion there. I, you know, we just don't know. We just don't know who he really is. Another question. I mean, competency is important, and he does appear to be competent. You know, you watch him at a press conference. You see him answering the questions. He does appear to be on top of his brief, which is more than you can say for the Prime Minister from time to time. So he's a possibility on competence. Does he have the charisma? that's needed. I mean, the Red Wall want leadership. They want real people, faults and all. Does he have the charisma uh, to reach into that group of people? I, I find myself with Rishi Sunak thinking, yeah, you know, he's one of the ones I, I want to be very positive about, but, but probably more questions than answers at this moment in time. On this point of leadership and making courageous decisions, which mm. Boris Johnson, I think he has this problem where he just can't say no. And as you say, they're just spending tens of, and hundreds of billions of pounds, the likes of which we have never seen because of the pandemic. And, mm. and you know, it's not just because of that, but he's, you know, he's, he's yeah. spending a lot of money. Is there a problem here where they, just, they can't admit that there is a real issue with the NHS? And I know you've talked about the NHS very controversially in the past because there are other systems... Oh. Everything I did was controversial. Well, absolutely. Well, all I did this was, was one of the most did, controversial. Well, what I did see was, like, was like, well, have a look at Europe. Have a look at the French model. Have a look at models which, by every marker, are delivering for the same amount of money, are delivering better results on strokes, heart disease, and cancer. And I think that's pretty openly acknowledged that we are behind in those three crucial areas. Um, and ask yourself a question, you know, maybe something more akin to an insurance model. I tried to float this 10 years ago. I mean, you know, for what good it did me. Because you get accused of wanting to privatise the NHS. So what Boris is doing here is he, he, he's trying to take ownership of the NHS. You know, take that away from Labour and make that ours. But there's a problem with that. It's all well and good going out clapping for the NHS. There is a massive health crisis coming. It's huge. I hardly know anybody, I hardly know a family that haven't had a problem with the NHS in the last six months. 
You know, um, increasingly people are opting out of the NHS. They're going for private GP consultations. They're paying for private surgery if they can possibly afford to. Because the waiting lists are... I mean, why should my mum at 81 wait two years for a new knee? She went privately. She's never gone privately in her life. And for her, I think it was genuinely quite a lot of money. But that's just one little example, you know. What do you mean the GP won't see you? I mean, I love that Matt cartoon, by the way. Last week's Matt cartoon, front page of the paper. It was two chaps meeting at a cocktail party. It was like, hello, I don't know you. You must be my GP. I mean, it was a, it was a brilliant cartoon. So you know, Boris is tying himself to this NHS issue. He's pumping loads more money into it. What happens if disillusionment with the NHS grows? If the money isn't seen to have reduced the massive waiting lists, <clears throat> what happens if we get a panic? You know, whether it's a flu outbreak or, uh, you know, a new COVID variant. I, I, I actually think that health is going to be his biggest challenge of all uh, now that he's nailed himself to the NHS mast and decided to say, no, reform is not the priority, keeping it as it is. And is that because it, it's this kind of uh, untouchable, holy-like thing in British politics where because all wants, you can do is throw money at it and that's no, it? No, he wants to steal it from the Labour Party. He, he's trying to say, look, we are the... You may have founded it, you know, back in the late 1940s, but we are now the owners of it. We're the ones throwing all the money at it. Uh, I think it's a heck of a risk. I think it's a heck of a risk. And as I say, disillusion with the NHS is growing. Disillusion within the NHS is growing. You talk to people who are working within the system. They're deeply frustrated by it. They're frustrated by the red tape, the bureaucracy, the lack of money that manages to find its way from one end um, out to the other into direct care. And there are times when the public is ready for a different debate. Uh, we may not quite be there yet, but we're not too far away. And the point about the NHS is that healthcare is free at the point of delivery. Not that you preserve the monolith that delivers that to the patient. And I think that's what we got wrong here. And I think he's taking a hell of a risk. There was also that strange thing where they said to us, we, it was our job to protect the NHS. Well, I think it's the completely opposite way around, right? <laughs> well, we're seeing more of that, aren't we? Yes, yes. Protect the NHS, you know, um, when they should be protecting us. And all right, short term we got it, but long term it doesn't work. And now, of course, we're being told that 12-year-olds must get vaccinated to protect the adult population, whereas I always thought in the past it was adults that provided protection for children. So there's quite a lot of that sort of thing going on. One last question on health, because I yeah. think it's really important at the moment. There is talk of the government locking down again this winter. Now, they have, you know, we have to say they denied it. They denied this before. They denied vaccine passports. They denied various things. Can you see that happening? <laughs> well, I won't be obeying the new rules. I, 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 quite frankly, if they want to lock down again, I'm not interested. I'm too old. I haven't got time. <laughs> I'm just, just not going to do it. And I think we've been remarkably compliant for a long, long period. But I think over the last few months, we've started to ignore what government says and the confusing rules and just to start to make our own decisions. Uh, I think if they do try to lock us down again, I think you'll see mass disobedience this time. Not, not willful, aggressive, just, hey, we're just not going to do this. Um, I don't know. The other one on health uh, that I want to just add quickly, if I may, The idea that a 12-year-old can overrule their parents' wishes on a vaccine 
that gives very little protection to 12, unless they've got asthma or, you know, gives very little protection to 12 year olds at all, but is being done somehow to protect everybody else. The idea that a conservative government would throw out of the window any thoughts of parental rights or the role of the family in society. This is the state replacing the family. This is the I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The most commonest thing I've almost ever seen in my, done by any government in my lifetime in this country, and I'm absolutely appalled. We've talked about health. We've briefly mentioned the economy, this tax rise. Let's get on to the third priority, immigration. Now, this has been something, obviously, you've talked about for a long time, but in particular, this border crisis in Kent. Again, one of those topics that you just, you just got on there before anyone else did, and it's extraordinary. Well, I could, well, I could see it. Can you just give people a, an idea of the scale of the problem at the moment this year? I mean, just look how many people are coming. Yeah, I mean, it's um, 785 uh, two days ago, although there's a lot of scepticism over that figure, believe you me, a lot. Oh, they don't count youngsters anymore. Under-18s aren't in the total. To the biggest scandal of all, if we'd been at Dover this morning, or I say Dover, anywhere from the North Foreland to the East Sussex border, if you and I had been there this morning, we would have seen RAF spotter planes, we would have seen drones, we would have seen the air-sea rescue helicopter, we would have seen border force vessels, we would have seen the lifeboats being scrambled to back up border force. Forget the 54 million. Forget the 54 million. What is this costing every day? And the biggest scandal of all is we're still not stopping boats getting all the way across and landing on the shingle beaches in Kent, and people then off on the run. We had the other day in East Kent, the helicopter was up for nearly four hours on a manhunt, trying to track people down as they're rushing off through the Kent countryside, no doubt on their mobile phones, you know, um, about to be picked up in a van by a trafficker and taken off to join the slave labour industry in this country. I mean, goodness knows what the daily cost of just all of this apparatus and all of this kit is. And when you see the new 
one time only purpose-made boats that are being built, which I predicted, I said would happen. And they're carrying up to 80 people. I mean, how, how would you feel? You know, you're living in retirement on the Kent coast in a bungalow, and opposite your window, 80 young men land on the beach and disappear. So there is considerable anger uh, in Kent about this, fear, with, I think, some degree of justification, astonishment at the range of different nationalities that are coming. They seem to be Africa now more than almost anywhere else. And it's out of control. Border force have completely lost control of this, and they know it, and they admit it. It's out of control. I said months ago, in fact, online, in the Telegraph, that it would be at least 20,000 this year. If the weather stays good, it'll be 30,000. Next year, 50,000. This is out of control. And we haven't deported a single person this year. Not one single person who's come across the channel has been deported, or will be deported, because as soon as we try and do that, uh, there'll be a well-funded uh, legal action claiming some act out of the Human Rights Act, which incorporated uh, European human rights law into British law. And that's why it's third on the public's list. It's likely it, it could even become second before very long. Uh, it, it, there is a national security threat mixed in with this. Now, and then you've got the Afghan crisis. So on top of what's already happening, You've got a situation now, I can see in six weeks' time, everyone that comes would have destroyed their ID documents and say they're from Afghanistan. Every single person that comes. Now, it's one thing in life to identify what's wrong, but what people want is not just an analysis that they agree with about something being blooming awful. It's what is the solution. It's why in the end UKIP did so well, because we offered solutions. The French are deeply reluctant to come to a, a deal with us. They would need probably to get that sanctioned anyway in Brussels. So that isn't going to happen. And all right, we had the Dublin regulation before, but it wasn't much use, because it was only if we could prove that people had previously claimed refugee status in Germany could we then genuinely send them back. So, you know, that only, only applied to a small number of cases. No, we're in the classic Australia situation. Um, Tony Abbott dealt with this in 2012. Um, he started off with offshore processing. Uh, that then led to complaints about conditions and human rights and goodness. Knows. And in the end, they just towed the boats back to Indonesia. And do you know what happened? They stopped coming. They stopped coming. So if the French won't negotiate, very simple. We tow some dinghies back into Calais Harbour. We dump them there. They'll be at the negotiating table within two days. We stopped giving them money. 130 million we've given them to help improve border security. Another 54 promised, which pretty says, I'm gonna get tough with the French. Well, you've given them all this money already. It doesn't really make much difference. And that's the only way, because at the moment, you may as well write on the White Cliffs of Dover, everyone welcome. And I think it is, especially for Brexit Britain. It's a humiliation on a scale I never thought I'd witness. If I was a left-wing lawyer, as Boris Johnson calls them, yeah. uh, I might say that you know Britain has a role to be compassionate towards these people. These are people desperate trying to get into Britain. We should be kind to them. We should let them in. We should process them. They're asylum seekers. What do you say to that argument about compassion? You know, sending them back. Well, I understand compassion, but I mean, you know, there are uh, through history very clear cases of people who are 
in genuine fear of their lives. The Huguenots? Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. Yeah, we, we can go through the list of Huguenots, Jews, Ugandan Asians. Uh, you could say Christians today, Christians in the Middle East today. But no, I mean, no one dares talk about them because we can't discuss Christians. I mean, it's all too difficult. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Well, even the Archbishop of Canterbury can't defend the rights of Christians. So there are, you know, there are groups of people who get murdered, who get imprisoned uh, because of what they are or who they are. Including in Afghanistan now. Yes, and whilst we do have a debt of honour uh, to those who helped us, uh, we also have to be very, very careful. There's already one that's been identified on, on a no-fly list that's got into the country, and goodness knows who else. Look, these young men that are coming into the United Kingdom, number one, they're coming through a safe country of France. Uh, number two... You know, they're coming from Mali, they're coming from Eritrea, they're coming from the Sudan. You know, now, these may not be places that you and I choose to live, and they may be countries that have got civil wars and problems. We can't open our doors up to everyone that comes from a country that is poorer or doesn't have as good a living condition as we do. We just can't do that, and yet we are doing that. And there's the cost of it. I mean, not just the financial costs, not, not just the fact that looking after asylum seekers has gone up by 40% in the last two years. What about the social cost? And this is territory, Stephen, that nobody will talk about. I mean, nobody will talk about. Because it's just too difficult. Look what's happened to Malmo. Just look at what has happened to that port which I used to know because it had, it had London Metal Exchange warehouses in it. So, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've done business through there in the past. Yeah, it's a port, so ports are always a bit rougher than perhaps a capital city like Stockholm. But a very large influx, and we're talking more than 10% of the Swedish population, a very large influx of young men between 18 and 26, 27, who come from countries with completely different cultural attitudes where women are not even considered second-class citizens, where those of different sexuality uh, get beaten up or worse, and you put large groups like that into modern Western cities, uh, and you're surprised uh, when shocking things happen. And nobody's prepared to have an honest, frank conversation about demography, about the balance and shape of society. Well, on this podcast, we previously talked to Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's, uh, and, and she, she was fantastic, and she's written a book recently just about this very issue of sexual violence against women. The influx of immigrants uh, from the migrant crisis has caused a real problem, and, and European governments have basically turned a blind but eye. But she's not British. She's not, I mean, I, mean I, you know, I admire the stand that she's taken, but who here is doing it? Who in Parliament's doing well, it? Well, this is it. Who in government's doing it? Who has actually got the... And that's the point, isn't it? You know, you're either a follower or you're a leader. And a leader stands up and says things that he or she knows, in the short term, they will take stick for. But they stand up and do it out of a genuine conviction that these are issues that must be talked about and problems that must be solved. And, that, and, and in a way, in a way, from the start of this conversation... We've talked about what's going wrong. Why is there this lack of leadership? I think we can actually sum it all up with this debate. It's a lack of courage. 
And on this point of the debate around immigration, now you've been called every name under the sun over the years <laughs> to do the, because of, yeah. because you've been talking about immigration. Know. You know, the I word know. racist, I'm sure, has been thrown around, and you've and you've heard it all before. And the reason that you ca- we can't talk about this as much as probably we w- we should do or we sh- or we would like to is because of this kind of toxic the debate that's been surrounded about immigration for a, for a long time now, really since since the Rivers of Blood speech. I, would I agree with that. You. No, I agree with that. I, I mean, I was a great fan of Powell in many ways. I think the Rivers of Blood speech was a catastrophe. I think Bill Deeds, later this manner, made the argument that Powell, that speech of Powell's, made it so much harder to talk about for decades afterwards. I remember in 2004, when the door was opened to eight former communist countries to join the EU with complete free movement into the UK, and then it became 10 with Bulgaria and Romania. And I remember making a big call on this, <clears throat> you know, a really big call on this. I remember thinking, yeah, they're going to give me a tough time over this. Little did I know, little did I know how much my life would change. Literally, my life would change over the next 15 years for daring to stand up and say it. But kind of, we've proved the power of it. Because, you'll meet some snobby Tories who'll tell you the referendum was all about sovereignty. Forget it. Forget it. Yes, of course, to some people, that concept of sovereignty was the most important question. The reason we had a big 73% turnout, the reason we got millions of people voting in that referendum who don't normally vote, is they actually thought on this question of borders they could do something about it. And their confidence in that was still there in December 2019 when Boris got that great big majority because he was still saying, yes, of course, we're going to you know, take back control of the, our borders. And now they're saying it's not happening, and that's why there's the disillusion. So the silent majority on this issue actually has shown in the last few years that when it wants to bear its teeth, it's got great power. Let's start talking about Joe Biden, because I think this is a really interesting subject. Um, <laughs> uh, the special relationship, I know it's something you want what to... What special relationship? Well, exactly, I wanted to talk about that. So it does that exist? Is that dead in the water? For now. Look, the special relationship... Or, or, you know, however you want to phrase it, our relationship with the USA has always waxed and waned over the years according to who was in the White House and who was in number 10. There have been very tense moments over the years. Suez, a very, very tense moment. Um, Grenada, even though it was Reagan and Thatcher, a very, very tense moment. Vietnam, when Lyndon Johnson walks up Downing Street with his 10-gallon hat on and says, you must get involved in Vietnam, and Wilson quite rightly, quite rightly said no. So we've been through these ups and downs over the years, but uh, the truth is we're the biggest, we're still the biggest foreign investor in America. It's incredible, isn't it? They're still the biggest foreign investor in the United Kingdom. We speak the same language. In fact, increasingly we speak the same language. It's quite interesting. Accents. The average English and American accent is much closer than it was 20 or 30 years ago. I really picked that up. We watch the same films. We watch many of the same comedy programs. The music. Trump, America first, everything must be American. These three great words made in the USA. I was on tour with him in the last election. And as Air Force One appeared on the horizon, the music was a big part of Trump. What was he playing? Elton John, David Bowie. I mean, they were all, they were all British singers. So music's interchangeable. Film, culture is interchangeable. We've never been closer to America than we are now. And the younger people are, the more hooked into American culture they are. So the countries are incredibly close. Will the business community, will culturally this rift at the moment make any difference? No, none. Absolutely none. 
But in terms of, of, of real politics today, we've opened up the doors to American uh, visitors coming to London. There is zero reciprocity. A trade deal, which Trump was desperate to do with us, desperate to do. Um, but of course, we faffed about for so long getting Brexit finished that it didn't happen. We are now, to quote um, Joe Biden's boss at the time at the back of the queue, no interest. No interest at all. Uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which many of us warned about, but even those of us that warned about it didn't think it, was, didn't think it was going to be this bad. Um, and Biden insisting that we must stick with that and his sort of um, soft-headed support for not just Irish uh, republicanism and nationalism, but even in its most extreme forms. Uh, he's been fairly happy to be photographed with IRA people. Uh, you know, also his love of globalism. So look, there is now no working relationship with America. Uh, he completely breached trust with his unilateral withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and when a British Prime Minister rings on a Monday morning to say what the hell's going on and doesn't get a phone call back till Tuesday evening, there is no special relationship between these two men and these two governments at this moment in time. The problem is that then leads on to a, that then leads on to a debate about NATO. What's the point of NATO? I mean, Trump was the wrecker of NATO. No, he wasn't. He was asking the Germans to pay 2%, because that's what the rules of the club were. Uh, Biden has said, well, I mean, I mean, can you see any joint NATO operations taking part? No, I mean, I don't see it. I, I, can't see, I can't see how NATO could even do anything at the moment. So, you know, America is back, the hero of Carbis Bay and the G7. And actually, America's now withdrawn. Uh, it's isolationist. It's kind of back to a sort of early 1930s or mid-1930s uh, type feel. And so... You, because of that, once again, the EU are bringing back their plans for a European army, and there'll be many in this country, including some quite senior retired military officers, who will think that's the alternative, and I, I don't want that. I think the American political relationship can be mended. I think that uh, the Republicans should do incredibly well in the midterm elections. And I don't forget, you know, the Senate is 50-50. The, the only reason they've got the, is they, they, they've got the casting vote there. They've got the power. In the House, the, Republic, the, the Democrat majority is about five or six. So it should be very easy for the Republicans to take back both houses. <clears throat> and Biden's problems are, what well, one, obviously competency. Uh, two, he's just given $85 million worth of up-to-date American military kit to a terrorist organization. The border crisis in America dwarfs the problems we're having at Dover, and violent crime uh, in America's cities is spiralling. So, you know, we wait until we get another American president that is a bit more pro-British. Let's talk about Afghanistan very briefly, because this is a really interesting topic. I saw you on uh, Fox News actually talking about this in terms of the special relationship, and I didn't know, you know, 450 Brits died in that conflict. We spent equally the same amount of money, if you look at it per capita, that, than America we did. did. We did. We were really involved, and no. yet we weren't consulted when no, they pulled no, out. No, you're absolutely right. Pro rata, population-wise, our deaths were almost bang on with America's. Our financial contribution, very similar. 7,000 amputees. There were 7,000 amputees from Afghanistan, Iraq, and modern wars. Mostly Afghanistan. It's a lot of people, isn't it? Never gets talked about. Never gets discussed. Yeah, we were absolutely in there. Um, and other NATO forces did, 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 did contribute people. But no, we were completely there by, by, by America's side all the way through. I was frustrated with being there for 20 years. What I came to realise over the last couple of months was that actually 
it was the Afghan army doing the fighting. The British and Americans were there to give moral support, to give material support, to give drone and intelligence support, to give air cover support, but it was the Afghans doing the fighting. We've not had a soldier killed there for seven years. The Americans have not had a soldier killed since before the pandemic broke out. Um, the numbers there were very small. The big money spend had gone right down. And that the Afghan army had taken 45,000 casualties since 2014. Wow! And once I looked at those numbers, I began to understand uh, that actually maybe a very limited continued presence did some good. But yes, Biden did this unilaterally without consultation, and I, I think we have every right to be aggrieved. It's interesting because you mentioned earlier it was actually $85 billion. I think slight, slightly misstoke, $85 million, but that's fine. But I just, uh, oh, sorry, billion. Worth, yeah, yeah, exactly, of course. worth their equipment. You know, it's one of the most well-equipped yeah. armies in the world, well, genuinely. It's not an army, it's a terrorist well, group. Well, exactly. I mean, look, I mean, look at the new Minister of the Interior. I mean, this is, you know, this is a wanted He's on the FBI wanted list. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Joe Biden, is it because the reason he doesn't have this special relationship with not just Boris Johnson, but with Britain itself, is it because he just simply dislikes Britain? I mean, you talked earlier about I've his, his Irish that. nationalism. I've always said that. Yeah. I mean, Biden doesn't like Britain. Obama couldn't stand us. And this is the way the world is now dividing. America, too, has big demographic change going on. And there are many in the Democrat Party who look far less to the old relationships with Britain and Europe because of the historical links and now look more to other parts of the world and that's just something that is happening over there but the democrats are globalists the democrats love the european union it's the most fantastic model they want the whole world to have it apart from america of course because uh, it wouldn't but although although hillary did suggest that america joined a hemispheric single market so but so is boris johnson weirdly i mean he's a globalist he talks about global britain he wants free trade deals he wants well, immigration you well, know, he's depends. a liberal yes and it depends also how you look at china um, uh, I mean, they're calling him Beijing Biden because, hey, what's he just done? He's just given the Chinese access to three and a half trillion dollars worth. I got that one right, by the way. Three and a half trillion dollars worth of mineral wealth, including a massive unexploded load of lithium, without which at the moment you can't build the much vaunted electric cars. Boris, of course, instinctively pro-China, surrounded by people who are pro-China. So they are natural allies, then, in that sense? Oh, I think Boris Johnson was much happier at Carbis Bay with Joe Biden than he, would have, than he would have been with Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. But yet, there's still a rift in relations. Well, because, ultimately, we are now Brexit Britain. I want to talk about global Britain in my final question. Yeah. Because I was speaking to Tim Stanley in last week's podcast, and he basically argued global Britain is simply a, a PR slogan, right? It's to get China and other countries to buy teapots from us. It's to get free trade deals. And in reality, it's, it's meaningless. And he says, well, look, I'm quite happy to accept that we're a second-rate or even a third-rate power. Oh, this is all very nice. And he says, well, he's, oh, I knew you wouldn't like this, but let me just finish the question very, very quickly. So he says, you know, it doesn't, none of this matters. We should just focus on ourselves. We've got to accept the empire is dead. Let's just be happy as a sort of second-rate power in Europe. Well, look, no, 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 no. How are we a second-rate power? You know, I mean, by any measure... But why would we want to be a first-rate power? That's his argument. Because we have a massive advantage around the world, a massive historic... You, th there is no example in history of an empire being formed and then having good relations with its former colonies. It never happens. It, the way this always works is the former colonies hate the former oppressor. 
But the British Empire operated under very different lines. And whilst there may have been things done that we wouldn't today think were perfect, we didn't do it militaristically, we didn't do it oppressively, we did it in a very, very different way. And because of that, we have this amazing organisation around the world called the Commonwealth. And some of them are countries that are not in great state. Many of them are countries we should be extremely proud of the fact that we're the mother country too. And when you combine that with America, where despite the current administration, we still do have a big say and a great degree of respect, you are looking at two and three quarter, two and three quarter billion people in the world. You're looking at over a third of the world's population that we potentially have some direct connection with. And if Tim Stanley is telling me that we should turn our backs on that as a potential source for doing good in the world, then I disagree with him. On that note, Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. I always love to thank interview you. you. Brilliant. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.